a quote I pulled is, quote, ask yourselves this, and this is the question that should guide anyone making true crime. How would you feel if the person responsible for the worst thing that has ever happened to you was suddenly being advertised as the lead on a popular Netflix show played by a beloved actor mostly known for playing a charming superhero, unquote. That really Which puts it in perspective. Really does. I'm Ellie. And I'm Libby. And this is Into the Murphyverse, a podcast where we dive into the TV made by one of the most powerful, most successful, most ambitious men in modern television, Ryan Murphy. If you've ever seen Glee, American Horror Story, Pose, Scream Queens, American Crime Story, The Politician, Hollywood, Ratchet, this show is for you. On today's episode, we're exploring everyone's favorite suspenseful, spooky, and ethically questionable genre, true crime. It's one Ryan Murphy has dabbled in for some time now, but only with his latest Netflix series has he faced such intense backlash. But before we get started, if you'd be so kind as to give us a follow or a rating wherever you listen to podcasts, that would be great. And if you have any feedback, DM us on Instagram. Our ads are in the description of this episode. All right, let's dive into the Murphyverse. We've all started to think about Ryan Murphy's relationship with true crime because of his latest Netflix series about Jeffrey Dahmer. But let's start by going back in time a bit and reviewing how his relationship with true crime has developed. I think one of the best examples um, is probably with American Crime Story. It's Um, right in the title. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it started with The People versus O.J., um people versus oj i think was treated with sensitivity to all parties more or less um maybe it's because we're used to such insensitive portrayals of people when it comes to true crime but i think compared to the genre as a whole i don't know i think people versus oj did a good job on sympathizing a lot with the kardashians who were sort of involved in this media circus and um people defending oj and the victim and her family uh it just does not seem as exploitative as some other true crime shows or movies thoughts Mm -hmm. yeah i would agree with that um it does make a difference that this was like the biggest media frenzy at the time and a lot of discussion had been had already so it had had its kind of exploitative moments (laughs) already and so adding a series on top of it um it could it could afford the series I think if anything I think a lot of the heavily exploited figures or even malign figures like Marsha Clark have been vindicated through that series and so yeah I don't see it as negatively as some other things that Ryan Murphy has done in true crime. For sure. When we look at um, Gianni Versace, um, this was a series with a lot of low profile victims. um, And it doesn't seem like there's a lot about um, whether families were consulted for this show um, or if they're telling their stories, but it doesn't seem like they were. And I think because they're really dramatizing the stories of so many of these victims. Um, It seems much more exploitative. Right. Yeah, I think the Versace family was consulted, if I'm remembering correctly. Although, I think in the series, they imply that Versace had AIDS when his family is adamant that he didn't. And so that is sort of a, perhaps a disrespect to the family. But I don't know. That's a, like, tricky subject. Um, But as we have discussed a lot, that series is really less about Versace and more about Andrew Cunanan and his many victims, most of which were not celebrities at all, and um, many of whom were closeted men, um, which is another very tricky subject for families. And I couldn't find anything on families of victims being consulted. Um, So this one just seems a little more icky, in my opinion. And finally, the most recent season of American Crime Story is Impeachment. I think Monica Lewinsky stood to be exploited the most through the series, but she was a producer on the series. She was heavily involved in this creation. 
Um, so I don't think there's any problem there. But Paula Jones was not happy at all with her portrayal and was never contacted for consultation at all. And um, I think the show as a whole could be seen as a service to Clinton's victims to show him in this sort of like predatory light. But still, I don't love the way that Paula Jones was treated, especially since she was made into such um, like a cartoonish character. Mm-hmm. you know yeah and I think it's great that I think definitely this series American Crime Story as a whole has taken more steps to have some ethics in its portrayal of true crime and crime stories so compared to a lot of what is out there I think it has done a great job but there is still a lot of um questionable areas for critique that's for sure And of course, we arrive at the talk of the town, the most watched series for a span of time that I'm now forgetting how long it was, Um, (laughs) the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Yes, let's talk about this title. It's called Dahmer Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. That's its full title. I was not even aware of that. I, I wasn't either, actually, but... That's just, who approved that title? Yeah. That's the least yeah. of its concerns, but still, who, who approved that? <laughs> yeah. So what, in what ways were families consulted about this show? They were not. According to what research I've done on the internet, families were not consulted or even warned of the release of this show. Um And a lot have taken to social media to talk about how seeing portrayals of themselves and the brutal murders of their loved ones is completely re-traumatizing. And even if they didn't watch the show, which I'm sure they didn't if it was re-traumatizing, just like social media itself is flooded with clips from it, with talk of it, talking about the characters and the victims, well, talking about victims as if they are characters and not real life people um yeah just really really devastating Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to get through more than I think an episode and a half um and even the first the episode one I fast forwarded through probably three quarters of it (laughs) yeah it was a little too disgusting and traumatizing yeah I haven't even tried to watch it Mostly because I think I saw the criticism before mm-hmm. I really saw the sh- anything else about the show. Um, and so that sort of gave me an icky feeling. It's like not something I wanted to support. And also just it doesn't interest me to see a lot of gore, just like so mm-hmm. much gore and cannibalism. Like that's, mm-hmm. yeah, not something I want to watch. Right. It's interesting to think, obviously, um, this isn't the first time stories about Jeffrey Dahmer have been told through TV or movies, or (laughs) there's been a lot about Jeffrey Dahmer already. Yeah, and I don't know how this one compares to others, just because I haven't seen any of those portrayals before. But just the fact, just the scale. I mean, this was the most popular show for, I forget how long, I don't know, a month? Like, a, yeah, like at least two or three weeks, I think. Okay. Which and is also disturbing that so many people yeah, have been watching this, which I think says something larger about our fascination with true crime and kind of like, you can't look away. Yeah. Kids these days, am I right? <laughs> Truly. The, with their squid games and their <laughs> Dahmers. Yeah. Yeah, that is strange that a show that you found to be mostly unwatchable (laughs) was uh, very watchable for so many people. I know there are portrayals of family members in this show without consultation of those family members. So I saw on Twitter, there was like a side-by-side of a victim's maybe sister or mother, I don't know, a woman uh, testifying in court extremely emotionally, like almost hysterically. Um, a side-by-side of the actress's portrayal versus the real thing 
and people absolutely fascinated in the comments for, I mean, for good reason, you can understand the fascination, but um, I don't know if it was that woman or someone from her family speaking out about how disturbing it is to see yourself like that at one of your darkest moments testify in court after your family member was brutally murdered and then having it sort of picked apart by an actor and by all of these fans is just really horrifying yeah and to think that they didn't get any warning that this was happening and now there are just all of these passive consumers on twitter um, yeah giving their two cents and then moving on with their lives yeah there is there's an article i found about Dahmer. um it's from collider and articles by kevin tash it's called Dahmer and the Moral Dilemma of True Crime. Because um, I think I just wanted to sort of understand a little bit more the I guess the moral dilemma of true crime. Because I've seen mm -hmm. so many TikToks about it, but I sort of wanted to have it distilled for me in an mm -hmm. article. Um, and just to summarize, um, Dahmer and this Dahmer series and other true crime shows or movies or podcasts or books or whatever often take the trauma and stories of victims and their families for free and generate massive amounts of profit for huge companies. Um, and obviously that is a huge ethical problem. Um, he or Kevin Tash does bring up a few points of defense for people saying the genre as a whole is bad and shouldn't exist. Um, his defense is that there's a lot of bad faith criticism that the genre glorifies killers um, rather than people critically interpreting it and understanding that, yeah, you're not always supposed to be morally aligned with the protagonist of a piece of media, which I think is definitely true. I think um, there's definitely a lot of bad faith criticism on social media nowadays mm. of pretty much everything. And that's something creators just expect, which is unfortunate, but um, that is a defense that some of this criticism is just in bad faith. Mm -hmm. And then another thing that he said was that criticism of true crime is an example of just criticizing anything that young women like, which I understand this take because, you know, it's like chick flicks, chick lit, whatever, mm -hmm. anything that women like is criticized. And that's true, but I think that this criticism of true crime goes much deeper than mm -hmm. that. So I don't think yeah. that's a very strong argument. Do you think? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think there's, it's definitely like a phenomenon. Like I think of true crime podcasts, like My Favorite Murder, um, which I've never listened to, but it's definitely like, sounds like it's very much geared towards the young women audience. Um, and so I see sort of a connection here, but I don't think that it's, yeah, there's, it goes deeper than that. Yeah. Like criticizing One Direction right. is different than criticizing true crime. Because what yeah. harm did One Direction do really? <laughs> the only harm they did is Nothing. to themselves. <laughs> exactly. And finally, another defense that he had for true crime was to blame the creators, not the consumers. So I think a lot of this discourse is surrounded about like people are sick for taking delight in the trauma of others. And, you know, they have a point. But really, the people we should place blame on are the ones exploiting and not the ones consuming. Right. Um, a quote I pulled is, quote, ask yourselves this. And this is the question that should guide anyone making true crime. How would you feel if the person responsible for the worst thing that has ever happened to you was suddenly being advertised as the lead on a popular Netflix show played by a beloved actor mostly known for playing a charming superhero, unquote. That really puts it in perspective. Really does. And it, you just really have to like always frame with empathy when like thinking about these things. Like what if it were you? Mm -hmm. The person may not seem real to you, because it's a character on a show. But yeah, what if Zach Efron were responsible for the death of your family member? Right. And I wonder- Link from Hairspray? 
<laughs> Troy Bolton? Yeah. I don't think yeah. so. It's it's so interesting too, like Jeffrey Dahmer and OJ Simpson and Andrew Cunanan, all of these people had their moment in American media. And I want to know, like, obviously the people versus OJ um was like the most televised trial in history at the time. But it makes me wonder to what extent that these cases were covered in the media. How does that impact the victims and the victims' families when a new Netflix series is created about them? Yeah, yeah, I do wonder that. And yeah, is there something different about reporting on actual people versus having a recreation Mm -hmm. of the whole situation? Yeah. Um, One of the other quotes I wanted to pull out from this article is just, quote, no piece of media is ever worth re-traumatizing someone, unquote. There you go. Which I think is perfect, a perfect way to wrap up this Dahmer discussion. Because no matter how good you think the show is, um, whether you think that it's good to remind people of how how bad Jeffrey Dahmer was, although I think we all know how bad he was and there's no need Mm -hmm. to do that. Um, it's just not worth it mm-hmm. to re-traumatize that many families. Yeah, it's it it does like that also interests me. You know, possibly like the worst, most gruesome crime that we know of. Why did it need to become a Netflix show? Yeah, <laughs> did it not already have its moment? And can't we just, you know? I yeah, know. how much is there to explore, really? Yeah, yeah. Like, I guess they sort of, from what I've heard, explore Dahmer's background. They do explore, I know, that he specifically targeted um, Black communities because he knew that they received less protection from authorities and just less attention in general. It's a uh, more, it's a way of operating on the down low, I guess. Um, So I think that is important to bring to light. Um, Just how um it is easier to prey on marginalized people but you don't need a whole gruesome gruesome show to bring that to light I think Mm -hmm. I also just wonder how Ryan Murphy goes through his day thinking that he has the most popular show for a period of time based on the most horrifying murders that have happened yeah (laughs) he's really done a lot yeah, hopefully he's working through some of that in therapy or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But don't worry, because just a week or two later, yet another Ryan Murphy true crime show was released on Netflix. Take it away. So you might have heard of The Watcher, um, which is much more watchable for me. <laughs> um, but at what cost? <laughs> because it is perhaps one of the most derivative and boring quote true crime series that I have seen once again could not finish it but not because it was too gory simply because I could not care less (laughs) I did finish it but only because I was watching it like while cooking or while doing other things that kept my interest because so let's let's take it back. The Watcher is based on a real story, a true crime story in which a family receives letters um, from an anonymous person who calls themselves The Watcher, um, claiming to be watching their house, giving details on their family and their children, just very, very creepy stuff, um, like sort of veiled threats really terrifying. Um, So it it is based on this real story, but it is so derivative that I don't know if it even really fits in the genre of true crime, just because they're really making up their own story based on this premise, which is fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, The real family did sell their story to Netflix and requested certain changes that were granted. So for example, they didn't use their real names in the show. And they also changed the family makeup. So instead of like three young children, they have two older children, um, things like that. Um, they did, the family 
was interviewed and called the trailer traumatizing and that they said that they wouldn't watch the show because the trailer was traumatizing enough. But considering that they did consent to this and sell their rights, they made money off of it, um, and that their um, their wishes were honored, I don't think it's exploitative exactly. Yeah, I I would agree with that. Um, and I just think it a couple things kind of stand out to me. Sorry. Or should I say just not stand out? <laughs> stand out to me because they do not stand out. One being it feels very sparse. It feels it has that feel of um, a movie shot in COVID times. And I'm not sure if it was. Um, but they don't do a great job at kind of just building the setting or, you know, it takes place in suburban New Jersey. And they kind of they paint sort of a picture of what that looks like with this giant mansion. Um, but you don't get a great sense of maybe why this is so terrifying. And you get a little bit of a glimpse into the dad's life and kind of how he's trying to protect his family. Um, but you're just kind of told that all of these events keep happening and the reaction, I don't know, the, the way that the family reacts to these you don't you don't get to see into their minds a lot. You're just kind of like watching all of these things play out. Yeah, it's very weird. And something I was looking forward to about this show is the real case of the Watcher is unsolved. There there are no real leads on what happened. So it could be like this one neighbor who seemed a little weird. It could be like this other guy. I don't know. It could be the father because one of the letters was actually in real life was sent by the father of the house. Um, and he claims that was the only letter, but it could have there could have been others. It's it's unknown. And so I was looking forward to seeing which direction the show took it in and which stance they would have on who was the watcher. But they completely avoid taking any sort of stance by just having so many twists. So, oh, you think it's going one way. Oh, twist, it's actually this other way. And then you think it's this other way for a while. Oh, twist, it's actually maybe this person. But all of the twists are so unshocking and boring <laughs> and uninteresting that you, it just loses your attention. Because you're like, okay, I'm not going to get invested in this next storyline if I know there's going to be yet another boring twist in one episode mm -hmm. they don't yeah. spend enough they don't spend enough time just letting you kind of observe and live with the characters to even care like yeah first I just want to say love Jennifer Coolidge love Margot love. Martindale love. as actresses and they're love. both in this series but another true crime series that Jennifer Coolidge is in is the White Lotus and mm -hmm. two episodes That's... have come out already. The third comes out tonight. Can't wait. But there's an example of a true crime show where the episodes are an hour each. And we have not seen a crime yet. And we're two yeah. episodes in. And we're simply just living with the characters, getting mm -hmm. to know them, getting to know their quirks and kind of weird interests. And we know that something is coming, but we aren't sure what because we're just kind of enjoying seeing their lives. Um, seeing what Christopher Moltisanti would have become if he had lived. Exactly. <laughs> Which honestly, that that tracks. <laughs> also, small edit, that is a fake crime story. The White Lotus. <laughs> yeah, I should have just said crime. <laughs> um, feels so Mystery. true, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's, I don't know. That's not a Ryan Murphy series, clearly. Um, but the way the story is told feels a little not thought through. Yeah. And yet another Ryan Murphy pitfall that comes up with so many of his shows is how many characters there are. There are way too many characters. And they are all following like a very specific weird trope, it seems. I don't know they're just none of them are believable at all which is fine like sometimes it's fun to have a show with 
very like fantastical characters but this is a true true crime show so like you sort of want to have believable characters right I don't know right like why are Marco Martindale and her husband so peeved about the whole like fence on their property thing like we, maybe we expect maybe we do I haven't finished the series maybe we do see why why do they care about the trees and why does the other family it, it's just like you don't there's no why into any of this yeah and it, I think they're setting up for more seasons which mm-hmm. you can set up seasons without just leaving everything unanswered right like, you have to have some something to keep you engaged and yeah right now it's just like oh I think I learned like this little thing about this character and oh it's disproven in this next episode mm-hmm. honestly the best the most gripping moment of the show was the dead ferret I was I saw that yeah. and I was like oh this is going to be creepy and good but no that was the peak yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah the dead ferret was good the dumb waiter the guy in the dumb waiter, yeah that's yeah always spooky when there's a dumb waiter always but then that was sort of made unspooky also I would love to have known why the family had never heard of the dumbwaiter I would say that's like something pretty well known but I think it was supposed to stand out that they hadn't heard of a dumbwaiter before hmm. do you remember I don't that remember they were like I remember learning what a dumbwaiter was at a specific pizza shop yeah yeah that has since gone out of business and that was fascinating as a kid yeah that was as an adult you know I think I know what a dumbwaiter is yeah especially if you're buying a multi-million dollar home but yeah yeah yeah. so interesting anyway it's just another way that these characters are so surface level Mm -hmm. Jennifer Coolidge just she deserves better and so does Margot Martin she really does yeah both of them do good thing they have (laughs) other projects going on I'm just thinking of the one line that caused so much um not controversy but just like laughter and people making fun of it on tiktok where um someone says to margot martindale like don't want you catching melanoma and she turns around very dramatically and says what if that's a battle i'm already facing (laughs) or something like that like the weirdest line it's so weird it just like i think a series like this just shows that like Ryan Murphy has too much on his plate. Yeah. He's gotta he's gotta just, you know, maybe focus on one thing at a time. It reminds me of I think there was a Slate Culture Gab Fest episode from years back where they were talking about streaming services and how like in today's golden age of television, there are so many like B minus C plus shows that are like watchable but not great. Um and like the A plus shows just don't really exist anymore. And I think this is a great example of that. Like it has everything it needs to be a great show and just doesn't make the mark. Yeah. Yeah. The A plus shows are definitely harder to find nowadays. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just there's more to sift through. Here's my thought. Why can't we just do another comedy or dramedy? Like Ryan Murphy, do we really need all of this true crime all of this drama that is not being executed very well. I mean, if we think of Ratchet, all of the latest mm-hmm. seasons of American Horror Story, they just, they're not hitting. They're, they're a miss. They're a miss. So can we make something hilarious again? Because, so yeah. big news. I watched season three of Glee for the first time recently because wow. my roommate insisted and she didn't have to insist that hard because I already wanted to do it. Um, and I found myself longing for this era of Ryan Murphy in which the jokes were so outrageous and funny. Mm-hmm. And so if if I'm if that's coming from Glee, it must be really bad, this current era that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It really points out just the difference is that stark and it really yeah. shouldn't be. Yeah. And now it's time for the Glee Corner. Iron tablet? Uh, Keeps your strength up while you're menstruating. I don't menstruate. Yeah? Neither do I. We, for once in our lives, have nothing to say about Sarah Paulson. Mm -hmm. And that is not for lack of trying. I just think she has been rather quiet lately. Mm -hmm. She's allowed. She's allowed to be quiet. She's allowed to have her moments. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. We love her still. Don't worry. <laughs> but instead, we are replacing Sarah Paulson Corner with Glee Corner because there is some amazing news in the Glee sphere. Tell there us is. about it. Um. So Tina and Artie have a new podcast. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Jenna Ushkowitz and Kevin McHale have a new podcast and it's called And That's What You Really Missed. It's all about, um, well, at least the first two episodes that are out are about their Glee experience and they have an in-depth interview with none other than Ryan Murphy. And it's really exciting because Ryan Murphy hasn't really ever talked retrospectively about Glee in an in-depth way. And mm -hmm. so it's interesting to hear kind of some of the mythology um, broken down and hear some of the true stories of what was happening at the time and um, how some things were so great and some things were not great. Um, and I've only listened to the first episode of the two-part interview, but um, I've learned so much already. Right. Yeah, they started out by saying that in 2020, with Naya Rivera's death, um, there was just this sort of great remembering of how crazy Glee was that was coupled with cast and crew members um, talking about their very negative experiences um, in some parts of the production of Glee. And apparently Ryan Murphy and the cast and crew ha were having a lot of discussions at that time to sort of talk through all First, all the pain of losing Naya Rivera, but also sort of the pain of remembering a lot of those difficult times on the show. Um, but then they say that they don't want that to be the only view that fans have of the show. And so they go into how wonderful it was for the first few seasons. Yeah. Um, it You learn through ryan murphy's interview about how this was kind of just like a little self-made project um nobody really expected it to take off um when ian brennan uh came to him with the script it was a lot darker of a story um will schuster was a meth addict and the whole thing was a lot darker. And I think in one variation, Justin Timberlake was supposed to play Will Schuster. Yeah, that's who they wanted to play Will yeah. Schuster. Um, so Ryan Murphy kind of reworked the show to make it a little more upbeat and happy. Um, added the musical element, I believe. Or at I least think, yeah, I'm not sure. Because I know he, he wanted least, to do yeah. a musical and then got Ian Brennan's script for the show choir show. But right. I think it might have already been a musical. I'm not sure, though. Yeah, okay. At least gave it more of, like, the musical theater kookiness, mm -hmm. sounds like. Um, but once he did that and he showed it to whatever execs were around, um, <laughs> I don't know if it was the Fox execs or somebody else, um, it was so sunny that there was no villain and no conflict. And they said, why, you know, how come? This is so unlike you. Um, he's like you're right and so that's when they added Sue Sylvester and apparently he said yeah we should add some kind of like Jane Lynch character and lo and behold <laughs> they added Jane Lynch herself yeah yeah he was like there we wanted to add like this terrible cheerleading coach and they wrote in like the casting like Jane Lynch type and then after a while they're like why shouldn't we just try to get Jane Lynch and she agreed to it immediately so great. yeah and so they also talk about casting and how some of the characters, I mean, Kurt's character was made for Chris Colfer, but, and I think um, Leah Michelle was sort of someone that they already wanted and Jonathan Graff was someone that they already wanted, but a lot of, other than that, they wanted to cast unknowns. They wanted to make stars if they could. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was interesting um, to hear the process of that. Um, and they really do emphasize that the first season or two of Glee was this amazing experience 
um, where there was sort of like a big happy family and they would come into set even when they weren't working just to watch other people's scenes and other people's songs. And it seemed like Ryan Murphy was super involved in making sure all of these sort of green, naive actors were being taken care of and knew their way around how to make a TV show. Um, so yeah, very, it was good to hear that side because I think we've heard a very negative side of the Glee production for a long time now. Right. Um, so it was fun to hear that part of it. Yeah. It was also interesting to hear how self-aware Glee was from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like that's something that we've caught on to and most people have. Um, but to hear it from the creator himself that it was a satire, it was making fun of itself. Um, yeah. It was just fun to hear that. But then it also begs the question, when did it lose its sense of making fun of itself? Or at yeah. least when did that satire become just way too, too much? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And it's like Ryan Murphy talks about all the compilations on YouTube that were like unhinged glee moments or like Sue Sylvester's most iconic quotes or creepy Will Schuster moments and in a in a tone that suggests that he loves them. So like clearly he's aware <laughs> of how unhinged a lot of glee is. Um but and yeah, some of the things like they <laughs> uh Jenna and Kevin were talking about how terrible what what does the fox say was and he was like I mean what was I supposed to do not do it like we had to do the hits of the day that's what the show is <laughs> and I thought like okay, okay I guess that's a defense but <laughs> so he's very aware of the misses of the show I think and just knows that that's sort of what the deal was right also, it was very interesting to hear how the network handled the show um, because he said he had a lot of great defenders from the Fox network and like highlighted them specifically, but also said that there was tons of homophobia from the network and not necessarily like they weren't exactly against the show, but just casual homophobia in their language. I think there was one exec who kept calling the show like the F word show. Yeah. And that's how he referred to Glee all the time during like these important network meetings and no one batted an eye. And it makes you realize like how different Glee was from everything else that was on at the time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was interesting to see after watching it on Netflix where a thousand other gay shows live. Yeah. It's yeah interesting to hear it from the fox 2010 perspective exactly yeah because you know we talk about how it was like truly the first of its kind in a sense um but it's hard to see that today because every show has some queer character that's championed or at least tries to um yeah. and this was before any of that so mm -hmm. So yeah, there are a lot of these interesting and oftentimes positive or, you know, reflective um, things in the podcast. And it does, t they do talk about how there was a lot of drama. And I think drama sort of um, makes light of what it was because there's a lot of racism and like abuse <laughs> that happened mm -hmm. on set. Um, but that apparently according to what they said didn't really start until the later seasons they don't specifically name anyone or point out anyone in particular but you can sort of deduce who they're talking about if you have prior knowledge of the situation and of Leah Michelle's um racism on set um and bad behavior on set and also they talked about how they were so overworked um because they were going on tour uh in addition to filming and all of the other things that they were events that they were expected to be at everything like that and they said like if the show had been filmed now they could have easily said like I need to take a step back I need to take like a mental health day and they would have been much better off but at the time that wasn't really something that they had the language for and so that just was not regarded as something important 
Totally. Yeah. And it wasn't just these, it sounds like it wasn't just these green new actors who were, you know, throwing themselves into this. It was Ryan Murphy as well. Um, And once Glee did take off, uh, he became overnight sort of a director of a multimillion dollar brand um, where he wasn't just a showrunner, but he was deciding what color the Glee merch should be and how this tour will work and venues. And he had a hand in kind of all of the Murphyverse (laughs) things that were happening outside of the show. Yeah, he was you really get a sense from this podcast how intensely involved he was in every single aspect of the show and the larger brand surrounding Glee, which is something that we joke about a lot. We say like Ryan Murphy is responsible for every single thing in his show. <laughs> but like in this case, it really seems true. Like um, Jenna, Jenna and Kevin would mention like a breakdown during this one episode. And he's like, I wish I like could have been there supporting the actors but I was picking Glee merch colors and like I was in all these meetings that I didn't want to go to and yeah it's crazy to think how involved he was yeah and kind of how how much of like a protective father figure at least he Mm -hmm. says he was um he wasn't telling the cast about these you know outside meetings and exec meetings um almost to like protect them from the insanity of all of it yeah and um he also says he he sort of apologizes for it it's more just less of an apology more of kind of like this is what was happening um he says like I didn't realize until now that I was kind of like an absentee father um and I wasn't there for you during these important times and you were so young and I didn't realize kind of how I, like, what the effect of that was on you. That was interesting. They kept referring to how young they were. And all I could think was, like, weren't these people, like, 35? But I looked it up and they weren't. <laughs> I mean, they were in their early, a lot of them were in, like, their early 20s when the show started. But just to be playing high schoolers, they do look about 40 yeah. years old. Um <laughs> Uh, the final topic that they talk about on part two of the podcast is how they handled Corey Monteith's death on the show, which I think is sort of the topic that everyone criticizes Glee for the most. Um, they, I don't know how much time they actually took off from the show, but definitely like a month or maybe even less. Like they really started filming immediately. And um, apparently actors were allowed to opt out of that episode if they wanted to. Um, but it was sort of a weird thing. It was like, well, if I opt out, like, how is that going to make me look? And if everyone else is doing it, like, is that disrespectful? It's just like a terrible position to be in. Um, and Ryan Murphy conclude, concludes that if he were doing Glee now, he would have taken like six months to a year off from the show and probably never returned Hmm. and just ended the show Mm -hmm. where it already was. That's interesting. Which I think is absolutely the right choice. And it's amazing that the show went on for so long afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And we have to remember too that Leah Michelle and Corey Monteith were dating at the time. Like there were so many kind of layers to right the relationships not only between characters but between cast members and crew and this history and this trauma yeah. it yeah and there's a lot to it ryan murphy and cory monteith were extremely close i think mm-hmm. they had an intervention for cory monteith just shortly before his death and after the intervention he was doing a lot better and tagging along with ryan murphy to like his other jobs just to have something to do and to hang out because they were so close. Um, and Ryan Murphy says, like, I was so relieved that he was coming with me to everything. And I like knew he was getting better. And I was just so glad. Um, and then literally the next day he died. And that is just such a devastating thing to think about and makes it even more amazing that they would continue to shoot so soon after. 
his death. Yeah, it's I did I haven't listened to that, so that's heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, but I think it's really good to just have for them to have had that discussion for both the very negative parts that we remember about Glee, but also all of these positive, lovely moments that they also remember. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a great, I mean, if you listen to our podcast and you're not our mother, then you've probably already listened to Jenna and Kevin's podcast. But if you haven't, take a listen. (laughs) It's worth it. And it's always, it's, I don't know, it's nice to hear kind of the story being retold from the people who lived it themselves. Um, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Always nice to hear that. And I think the structure of the podcast is supposed to be a watch along. So I think they will go episode by episode. Oh, oh my gosh. As far as I know. Yeah. Wow. That'd be great. Like Mike's Mike, but. I know, way more in depth. (laughs) (laughs) There are also just some crazy things that I learned from these, just like little throwaway remarks that Ryan Murphy made that were just incredible to me (laughs) um one is that he knew from day one that he was going to create a madonna episode which is probably my favorite episode of glee um next to britney britney um but yeah so i love that he knew that was going to happen from day one it was also news to me that he directed eat pray love um wait maybe I i don't even remember that from the podcast that's amazing yeah, he said he was off doing Eat, Pray, Love. And I was like, e- the Eat, Pray, Love? <laughs> like yeah, I was off I, in Italy. <laughs> I think I interpreted that as him just like sort of, yeah, roaming the European countryside and eating yeah, bread. Yeah, it was, right. <laughs> it was actually the movie. The movie. Um, and then also that Glee led him to his marriage. Um, his husband, David, I, I forget what the story was but asked him for glee tickets to glee on tour (laughs) and it was love ever since so that's hilarious (laughs) no well he did say that they had been friends for a long time too oh and ryan murphy had already had like a crush on him and but what brought them together like in a romantic sense was the glee on tour just hilarious (laughs) oh my god um also like we said he had a hand in just so many of the processes including picking the songs hand picking them for it sounds like almost all of the first season um which is also eye-opening there are so many Mm -hmm. great songs in that season but also so many odd choices yeah um, that I just you know I want to know the reason behind every single one yeah, I feel like all the odd choices is him saying, like, I can't just do musical musical theater and pop. Let's, like, throw a rock song in there. And then him, like, and not knowing enough about what would be popular. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Yeah, there's just, like, some weird choices that I wonder about. Was Run Joey Run in the first season, or is that? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't think can't so. Remember. But I don't know. Let's hope somebody else picked that so we can blame somebody else. Yeah. So it seems like Ryan Murphy these days says yes to every production. Um, but he said no to one in the past, which was a Warbler spinoff. He said, no, that show will not happen. <laughs> <laughs> and sounds like he sort of regrets it, but that it was the right choice at the time. Yeah, he says, like, that would have been a great show, but I just had too much on my plate. It's like, take some of that attitude now. <laughs> yeah. For sure. But that makes me wonder, like, would Blaine have been in the sh- in the normal show? Like, who would have been in that Warbler show? Right. Would it have been kind of how the Warblers got started? Like, would there yeah. be a Warblers pre-Blaine, post-Blaine? Um, and it, it's like the butterfly effect. Like, would there be the um, smooth criminal? Oh my gosh! Number if it if they had been focusing the warblers only on the spinoff and not in glee would there have been a clean shrine yeah exactly makes you really really take take stock of your life and be (laughs) thankful for what you have in it it really really does (laughs) perhaps the most eye-opening moment from at least this first episode of the podcast for me 
was hearing Ryan Murphy talk about how the actors were new to Hollywood and so fresh um, and all had some kind of connection, it sounded like, to, you know, being high school losers <laughs> and <laughs> being um, kind of like nobodies. Um, but Ryan Murphy just comes out and says that he says, <laughs> we were all marginalized people. And suddenly we became the establishment and the trendsetters. And I'm sorry, but this quote is just too in line with <laughs> Will Schuster's quote of we are all minorities. We're in the glee club. <laughs> it's just like, who's we? We are all marginalized people. Who are you speaking for? You better kids? only. Yeah. Yeah. What? Theater kids are actually a protected class <laughs> under the UN charter. <laughs> oh boy yeah so I, I just couldn't believe those words came out of his mouth and that they stayed in the episode <laughs> yeah that's hilarious oh boy. my god yeah I think he needs to watch some more TikToks he's self-aware but he could he has room for improvement <laughs> he does <laughs> and that has been the Glee Corner and that's how Sue sees it so in conclusion the thesis statement of this episode is less true crime, more comedy, maybe more musical comedy even. That would be better. Just an overall, just fewer shows. Say yes to less. Say yes to less. Mm -hmm. And if we're restating our thesis at the end here, let's also leave off kind of some food for thought, which is bring back Jane Lynch, maybe? Yeah. Um, who knows if she would say yes to a, another Ryan Murphy production, but I maybe maybe she's the ticket to a a dramedy. Yeah, with some she's, killer jokes. She's not on Broadway anymore, so she has time. Exactly. <laughs> she might be doing a game show, but honestly, it's not important. Right? Who cares? <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, please do give us a follow or a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. We don't currently have a topic for next time, but if you have a suggestion, please let us know. Our apps are in the description. Please tune in for whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs>